As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 207. What did Urban want? Odo, of the noble Laguerre family, was born in the Champagne region of France in 1035. He only joined the church in his mid-thirties, becoming a monk and going to work at the monastery of Cluny in central France. Cluny was a huge establishment and the leading centre of ecclesiastical thought in Western Europe. He remained there for 20 years and rose to the position of Grand Prior, essentially the right-hand man of the abbot. In his mid-fifties, he was promoted to become the Bishop of Ostia, as in the Port of Rome. This was 1080, meaning that Odo became a player in papal circles at the same time that Alexius became emperor. The Pope at the time was the notorious Gregory VII, a hugely ambitious and confrontational character, and leading light in the papal reform movement. Odo became an enthusiastic supporter of Gregory, and when the next Pope died after only a year, he nominated Odo to replace him. So it was that on the 12th of March 1088, Odo became Bishop of Rome and took the papal name Urban II. Urban became pontiff at a time of great crisis. Another pope, installed by the German emperor, was actually resident in Rome, while Urban was trapped in the south of Italy. Over the next seven years, he had to use every diplomatic tool at his disposal to restore his position, including calling a crusade to free Jerusalem. A year after Urban became pope, Alexius met with the Count of Flanders in a Thracian field and asked him for help. The emperor was also struggling through his own crisis. Urban and Alexius quickly found that they needed one another, 
By aligning their interests, perhaps they could both restore their positions. We know why Alexius needed Urban, but why would Urban need Alexius? How would raising an army and sending them east help the Pope retake the city of Rome? Today we ask the question, what did Urban want? Before we can move forward with Urban's narrative, we need to step back in time and discuss the state of the papacy in the 11th century. The last time we talked about Rome in detail was episode 188, The Great Schism. Back then, you may recall, a papal embassy came to Constantinople to discuss an alliance against the Normans. Attempts to find common ground were torpedoed by a letter circulating at the time which listed Latin liturgical errors, penned by a Byzantine bishop. The papal legates were denied a meeting with the patriarch and eventually lost their cool, excommunicating the archbishop and storming out of the Hagia Sophia in a huff. As we discussed at the time, this was very unusual behaviour for papal representatives. The men in question may only have acted as they did because news had just reached them that the sitting pontiff was dead, and therefore any agreements reached in Constantinople would be null and void. But in part, they acted with such high-handedness because of their belief in the primacy of Rome, that the Pope was the head of the Christian Church, and that Church included all of Byzantium, too. This way of thinking was hardly new to the 11th century, but a movement to make papal supremacy a reality was underway, and doubtless it fueled the inflexibility that led to the so-called schism. Now, this is the history of Byzantium, not the papacy, so we're going to talk in very broad brush strokes. But here is what you need to know about what is often called the papal reform movement. If we cast our minds all the way back to 800 AD, it seemed like an order had been found in the post-Roman world. Charlemagne's coronation made him the new Roman emperor, the supreme secular power who would protect and promote the church's interests. The pope was head of the church, and by crowning future emperors, he would ensure that his successors always had the emperor's ear. But as you know, the Carolingian Empire did not sustain that kind of centralised authority. Power drifted back to each corner of Europe. By the mid-11th century, the kings of France had little authority outside the centre of their country. The German emperors depended heavily on political circumstance to get things done. And everywhere across the West, local lords were building castles and locking peasants into feudal relationships. To use a crass generalization, the Middle Ages were finally starting to look like that nice picture of them we have in our minds. The issue for the church was that many of these local lords were appointing their own clergy, and in some cases even bishops. Politics in the West was still largely done through grants of lands and titles. Many church offices came with revenues attached, which were highly prized, and so grandees would hand over ecclesiastical positions to their friends and supporters, regardless of their suitability for the job. Or, in some cases, they would sell the office to the highest bidder. 
Across Western Europe, then, one could find unsuitable priests who were often taking a full part in secular life, including having families and leaving their estates to their children. From the papacy's point of view, this was all trampling on vital interests, both sacred and profane. On a spiritual level, many of these men were clearly living sinful lives, and doing so in full view of the faithful, undermining the church's teaching about the importance of imitating Christ. On a practical level, these men were flouting church discipline and monopolizing positions and revenues that rightly belonged to the See of St. Peter. The papal reform movement was an attempt to clean up the church, to restore the morality and standing of the clergy at the same time as reinforcing the wealth and power of Rome. Now, I'm aware that that last sentence might suggest there was a dichotomy between these two aims, perhaps even implying that material concerns were the real issue and spiritual ones merely window-dressing. But I don't want to give you that impression. Several crusade historians make the point that no such dichotomy existed in the minds of many church reformers. As in, they were entirely sincere about restoring the church to its apostolic origins, determined to rid the institution of sinfulness and save the souls of ordinary people. Naturally, the best route to achieve this goal was to gather the political power and wealth needed to exert influence over secular lords. The men who worked in the Lateran Palace were well aware that politics was a grubby business, but doubtless they considered the dirt on their hands a price worth paying for securing the future of the church and their own futures in paradise. Often our modern minds are trained to view this activity as evidence of cynical human acquisitiveness and to disregard the deep religious feeling that motivated people of the past. I'm not saying that there were no selfish or greedy people in the church, but I think it's vital that we keep a sense of perspective. The papal reformers believed that they were fighting for something holy, something greater than the everyday concerns of correct behaviour. The papal reform movement encompassed a wide range of interests, including changes to the organisation, bureaucracy and laws of the church, none of which is our concern today. Though, to give you an example of the far-reaching effects of these reforms, this was the period when the church began to make clerical celibacy a requirement, the thinking being that priests needed to regain the confidence of the public with a demonstration of their separation from secular life. Our major concern is how the church became involved in military affairs. As a major regional political authority, the papacy had never been a conscientious objector to the wars which had crisscrossed Italy over the centuries, but the idea of the Pope himself gathering or even leading armies was anathema to many Christians. But papal-sanctioned violence did start to become a reality during the 11th century. As you probably know, military organisation in the West was largely based on the fief, a piece of land handed out by a wealthy lord to a knight in exchange for military service. 
The land was not the knight's property. He was its landlord so long as he served his lord well. Slowly across the 11th century, the idea was developed in Rome that perhaps these lords should in turn owe military service to the Pope. If the papacy could create such bonds of dependency in the secular nobility, then they would be in a much stronger position to control church appointments in those territories. Events moved this idea closer to reality as the century wore on. As we discussed last episode, in order to confront the rapacious Normans, Pope Leo IX had felt compelled to gather an army in the 1050s. He suffered defeat, though, and in the aftermath, the pontiff became a Norman prisoner. Unable to forge an effective alliance with Byzantium, subsequent popes began to reconsider their relationship with Robert Giscard and his kin, eventually adopting the Normans as their clients in exactly the kind of lord-knight relationship we just talked about. The Normans were conquering new lands, though, both the Byzantine south and Muslim Sicily beyond, so it was a particularly appealing scenario for Rome. They could directly control the entire ecclesiastical hierarchy in the newly acquired lands with little resistance from vested interests. Applying similar principles north of the Alps was going to be more of a challenge. It would require constant moral pressure on pliable lords to get them to accept the pontiff's authority in their own lands. Enter Gregory VII. Though much of the intellectual development of the papal reform movement had taken place before his time, it was Gregory who put into practice the ideas that would eventually formulate into the First Crusade. I'll quote historian Thomas Asbridge in full to sum up who Gregory was. A profoundly ambitious, willful, and intransigent figure, Gregory fought harder than any pope before him to realize the potential of his office, struggling to unify and cleanse Latin Christendom under the banner of Rome. In his mind, there seems to have been no question that the pope should have total, unchecked control over the spiritual well-being of mankind. He was equally in no doubt that this power took precedence over that exercised by kings and princes. Gregory became Pope in April 1073, and barely a year later he was writing to various nobles across the West asking if they would march under his banner to Jerusalem via Constantinople. This startling suggestion was designed to actually solve a web of interconnected problems. Gregory actually wanted an army to march south with him to discipline Robert Giscard, who wasn't proving as obedient as Rome had hoped. But Gregory knew that for men to serve voluntarily on a distant campaign, they would need a greater inducement than merely serving the Bishop of Rome. The Turkish victory at Manzikert thus provided him with a useful pretext to link Jerusalem to his ongoing struggles with the Normans. In his recruitment letters, he spelt out how he saw the campaign progressing. After quickly bringing the Normans to heel, the army would cross the Adriatic and march for Constantinople. There they would unite with the emperor in a campaign to drive the Turks from Anatolia before continuing on to Jerusalem. 
The sheer ambition of the plan is extraordinary, particularly for a pope in only his second year in office. But Gregory clearly felt that pushing Western leaders to take up arms under his authority was key to the success of the reform movement. Once these nobles had fought for the Vicar of Christ, surely they would have to accept his writ in their churches and abbeys. Leading them to Jerusalem provided the campaign with an unarguably pious goal, while aiding the Byzantines would give Gregory tremendous authority as the head of the Christian world. Antony Cordellis argues that had Gregory's army ever made it to Constantinople, there would have been big trouble, since he assumes Gregory would have demanded recognition of Rome's primacy as part of his military assistance. The campaign never materialised. Gregory lacked the authority he needed at this stage of his career, and his plan lacked some of the key features that Urban's crusade would have. But the fact that some in Rome already saw the appeal of such a plan is highly significant. The broad outline of a campaign to Jerusalem was clearly neither Alexius nor Urban's idea. It had been cooked up decades earlier by emperors in need of assistance and popes keen for more power. Turning away from the east, Gregory would look north instead, provoking one of the most famous confrontations in medieval history. If the Pope was going to control all church appointments, then he would one day have to tackle the power of the German emperors, who for a long time had appointed all their own bishops. Gregory went straight for the jugular, and when Henry IV refused to abandon his rights, the Pope excommunicated him. You've probably heard bits and pieces about the investiture crisis before. Henry called Gregory's bluff and stood in the snow at Canossa in order to be forgiven, but Gregory couldn't help himself and ended up offering support to Henry's imperial rivals. The subsequent civil war went Henry's way, and in 1083 he marched on Rome. These events actually intruded directly on our narrative, with Henry on the road, Gregory called on his most important ally to defend him, Robert Giscard. Giscard was, of course, in the Balkans at that moment, having just defeated Alexius at the Battle of Dyrrhachium. Giscard's departure allowed Alexius the breathing room to come to terms with Robert's son, Bohemond, and eventually to win the war. Back at Rome, Giscard was able to rescue Gregory, but he couldn't stop imperial forces from capturing the Eternal City. Henry installed his own pope, Clement III, essentially blockading the reformers in the south of Italy, where Gregory would die, chastened, in 1085. Before we bring Urban to the front of the stage, it's worth noting that the Norman campaign in Byzantium was sanctioned by Gregory. Here's Thomas Asbridge again. Centuries earlier, patristic theologians had described the internal spiritual battle waged against sin by devoted Christians as the warfare of Christ. In time, it became popular in learned circles to conceive of monks as the soldiers of Christ, ascetics armed with prayer and ritual engaged in a metaphorical war with temptation. Gregory appropriated this idea and twisted it to suit his purpose. 
he proclaimed that all lay society had one overriding obligation to defend the Latin church as soldiers of Christ through actual physical warfare. Gregory had helped instigate a civil war across Germany and northern Italy with his excommunication of the emperor, and in order to rally men to his side, he began to encourage violent acts that served his political aims. He was still keen to sign up Western nobles as his personal vassals, but in the meantime, he began offering a remission of sin to those fighting his corner. We will talk more about sin, penance, and indulgences in future episodes, but Gregory was essentially saying that violence in his cause was not only not sinful, but could actively wipe other sins off your slate. The remission of sins was a key element in the Crusades, a huge motivating factor for Western knights in making the journey to Jerusalem. Here in the 1080s, Gregory began promising remissions to nobles in Germany resisting Henry, to Milanese street gangs who were trying to remove corrupt prelates, and to the Normans when they crossed the Adriatic. The decision to sanction Giscard's shameless aggression reflects very poorly on Gregory. Not only was the pretext for the invasion of Byzantium flimsy, but the pontiff was telling men that they could work off past sins by murdering fellow Christians. Hence, Antony called Ellis's suspicion that Gregory wanted the Orthodox Church to submit to his rule and saw no problem in using the blood of their parishioners to get it. Urban would prove to be a far more conciliatory figure, at least towards his fellow Christians. We return at last to 1088 and Urban's rise to the throne of St. Peter. Except, of course, he was nowhere near St. Peter's Basilica. Urban and the reforming party were trapped in the Norman south of Italy during his early years. The Western Church was divided in two. Many still supported Urban as the representative of the legitimate line of St. Peter, while others backed Clement. The Emperor Henry was back in Germany and still dealing with opposition to his rule, so Urban made furtive attempts to enter Rome and connect with his supporters. He celebrated his coronation mass in the city in 1089 before retreating, and spent Christmas camped outside the city walls in both 1091 and 92. With no professional army serving either pope, the two sides continued this strange campaign for prominence throughout the early 1090s. It was a classic struggle for legitimacy. Neither could physically dislodge the other, and so it was a case of winning the public relations battle, of discrediting one's rival and using political and religious sentiment to sway the opinion of those who could offer practical support. Both Clement and Urban engaged in extensive letter-writing campaigns, trying to gain support for their position. An ally that Urban was particularly keen to cultivate was Alexius Komnenos. There were several reasons why an alliance with Byzantium would be very beneficial for Urban's position. First amongst them was the need to gain recognition from important figures. 
If the Eastern Empire made it clear that Urban was the legitimate pope in their eyes, it would be a huge blow to Clement's pretensions. Even if the reformers claimed primacy, they still recognised Constantinople as the second great see of the Christian world, so to be on good terms with the patriarch would be a vital part of winning the ecclesiastical battle. On a practical front, Urban was physically trapped in the south of Italy, so he was rubbing shoulders with a lot of former Byzantine subjects. The Norman takeover was only 20 or 30 years old at most places. The Christian populations of the south and Sicily were still largely Greek speakers who looked to Constantinople for their spiritual guidance. It made good sense, therefore, to smooth relations with the Byzantines. Late in 1088, then, Urban dispatched a delegation to Constantinople to humbly request a restoration of good relations. Alexius was only too happy to oblige, and in fact soon afterwards began asking the pontiff directly if he could recruit soldiers to help fight for him. Alexius was particularly anxious in the build-up to the final battle with the Pechenegs in 1091, and Anna notes that her father was watching the horizon to see if any more Western mercenaries would arrive as the day of battle drew near. Of course, Urban's ability to recruit was hampered by his exile, and it was only in 1093 that his position suddenly improved. Again, it was the politics of the German Empire that opened the door. Conrad, Henry's son went into revolt in northern Italy and was soon joined by Henry's wife, who left the emperor and began blackening his name. Both offered their support to Urban, who seized the opportunity with both hands. He announced plans for a church council to be held in March of 1095 in Piacenza, a little way south of Milan. It was a defiant political act, not only had Piacenza just gone into rebellion against Henry, but it was also Clement's old bishopric. Amnesty was offered to any clergy who had previously supported the German emperor, and the stage was set for a council that would make a clear statement to the leading men of Europe that Urban was the true pope. Amongst Urban's entourage, plans were afoot for further tours outside of Italy now that Conrad's rebellion had allowed them some freedom of movement. This would allow Urban to reconnect with communities that hadn't seen the Pope or his representatives in decades. Urban had an eye on his homeland, France. He could once again visit Cluny and Champagne. A tour there would strengthen his hold over the church and the laity while avoiding Henry's territory. So the story goes, though, once at Piacenza, Urban's plans changed when a delegation arrived from Byzantium with news that Alexius's position was weakening. The emperor had barely survived an assassination attempt and a Cuman invasion, and Anatolia was slipping ever further from reach. Suddenly, all that Urban had learnt at Gregory's feet came back to him. What better way to restore his position than a grand campaign to Jerusalem via Constantinople. This was the way to show that the lords of the West owed their allegiance to Urban, not to Clement, not to Henry. It would also demonstrate the power of the papal office in a subtler way than was Gregory's style. 
Not only would Urban send the Lords of the West on a selfless, pious campaign, free of the murk of their local rivalries, but he would promise that any who undertook the journey could gain forgiveness for their sins. A truly penitential pilgrimage. What Urban wanted was clear. He wanted to be recognised as the legitimate Pope. He wanted an end to hostilities with the German Emperor, but he wanted them on his terms. Urban was a reformer. He believed that ridding the Church of secular control was what God wanted. And his mentor Gregory had shown him that violence was a tool which the Church could and should use to achieve these ends. The idea of a crusade presented itself at the ideal moment. It was not preached by a pontiff who could command the faithful to do what he pleased. Instead, it was a carefully calculated pitch from a pope in a vulnerable position who wanted to restore his party to power. Urban was attempting to cut his way through the Gordian knot of problems he faced with the sword of the Western Knight. In a couple of episodes' time, we will look in detail at how Urban preached the crusade. This was no spur-of-the-moment decision. It was a carefully planned recruitment campaign that turned out to be even more successful than was intended. On our next episode, though, we call in the big guns. Much of the detail of what Alexius wanted is absent from the history books, and even Urban's precarious political position is sometimes given a miss. The man who restored both to prominence in his book, The First Crusade, The Call from the East, is Professor Peter Frankopan. I interviewed Professor Frankopan about why Byzantium gets left out of the crusading story, and I also asked him many other questions, including about the importance of the papal reform movement. His answer to that one may surprise you. <laughs>